Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your videocast episode 151 and podcast episode 141 for the week ending September 8th, 2022. Welcome, everyone. A ton to cover today, so uh, get your pens and paper handy. Uh, we'll start with the media hits real quickly. want to thank uh, Kristen Scholler and Ellie Park for having me on Cheddar. Uh, anyone that owns or has been involved with any of the meme stocks, listen into that. There's a really good message for you. Um, definitely great. Want to thank uh, Mitch Hawk and Zoltan Sarani for having me on Benzinga. Uh, this was a longer segment all about the markets and uh, some of the factors that we're going to cover today. Always get really positive feedback from uh, Money with Mitch on Benzinga, so check it out if you haven't already. Uh, quote of the day, we're going to talk about Buffett saying, quote, it's better to hang out with people better than you. Pick out associates whose behavior is better than yours and you'll drift in that direction. That's why we have these podcast video casts. Uh, many of you are not uh, full time in the investment market, so you can uh, learn from someone who is. Uh, I had a lesson with uh, the golf pro uh, last week, a playing lesson, and he's like, you know, basically you got it all together. The number one advice I could give to you is just play with, consistently play with uh, people who are better than you. And, and I've always sought to do that. And uh, that'll help bring me up the curve over the next couple of years. So um, let's look at the general overview of the market. Some of the indicators we look at this 10 uh, day put call is starting to come down, still elevated, a lot of fear in the market. Uh, this is a formula for uh, things to move up, not down. The fear is already there. The fire already happened. Take a look at the previous times. All of these indicators are near uh, points where you want to be a buyer, not a seller. Uh, and they're even more pronounced and some of them are starting to turn up as of yesterday. Uh, we were kind of in the minority telling people that th this was an opportunity uh, and now it's starting to play out. Now we still have a lot of uh, way to go in terms of getting those inflation numbers next week are the most important data points of the year. But uh, look at this, uh, equity managers only at 32% equity exposure. They're going to have to chase like crazy on any good news into year end. This PMO buy all is at the levels where you want to be a buyer. Sometimes it can stay there for a little bit. So we're a little bit early here. Maybe we get a little bit more fear in the market in the next couple of days, but uh, on balance, these are in areas where you want to be looking for stuff to buy, not stuff to sell. Uh, you don't want to be buying insurance, you want to be selling insurance, uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Even the McClellan Oscillator is now turning, just getting started here, plenty of room to go. Um, here's another on the new NYSE McClellan. I mean, the setup looks great. The skew, which we've talked about many times, um, managers have already taken down their exposure. Uh, there's nothing, nothing left to ensure one and two standard deviations out. Uh, and, um, and that's why you see that. And that's also consistent with uh, historically places you want to be a buyer. Hasn't been this low since the pandemic lows. Uh, and we've covered that in recent weeks. The VIX starting to come down modestly in the last couple of days. Moving right along, um, Fed Chair Powell. This was something that I talked about a couple of weeks ago that I thought they would start to do in Jackson Hole, but it took uh, eight or 10 days later. Fed's Powell, I am prepared to adjust the balance sheet runoff as the economy needs. This is a very important quote, and this is one that I was expecting, meaning 
He can ramp it up if inflation runs hot. He can uh, take it down. In other words, he's not fixed to the schedule uh, that they originally put out, which means that they're already uh, setting the table for a pivot. Uh, moving right along, Seth Golden put out this note from uh, Kevin Muir over at Bloomberg. This is very, very important. Um, this is the last period of quantitative tightening. Um, equity market prices moved higher with higher volatility. Uh, but this time, the size of the Treasury general account is about $800 billion and the reverse repo uh, $2.2 trillion liquidity drain is unlikely and or limited. So what does that mean? Uh, this is the second quantitative tightening operation. The first began as a passive program in 2015 and ended in 2019 prior to the COVID-19 crisis. The quantitative tightening program began again in June 2022 through a more active Fed process that involves not just allowing maturing assets to roll off the balance sheet, but to include active asset sales to counterparties. In the past, counterparty participants included only primary dealers. That list of participants has grown through the COVID-19 period to include approved municipality and mutual funds, in the meaning more buyers to absorb the supply. In the past, when the Fed aimed to reduce its balance sheet using quantitative tightening process, the Treasury General Account, TGA, usually had no balance. This is important. That is not the case today. In fact, the TGA has ballooned its balance to a more recent level of $800 billion. In the more recent past, Q4 2018, the reverse repo operation was $400 billion with only limited counterparty participation. But that is not the case today either as the reserve repo operation has ballooned to $2.2 trillion and includes, which is more, by the way, than they'll, they'll ever roll off the balance sheet, uh, and includes a greater participation to soak up asset sales. Well, let me reemphasize that. The reverse repo operation is at $2.2 trillion, and that includes a greater participation to soak up asset sales. The aforementioned accounts above act as liquidity provisions for the financial system. That's $3 trillion of total liquidity between the TGA and the reverse repo. When they increase, liquidity is rising. When they decrease, liquidity is declining or being drained. As the Fed looks to reduce its balance sheet today, quantitative tightening too, it will be selling assets to counterparties for which there are now more to engage than in previous quantitative tightening cycle. Additionally, and unlike the previous quantitative tightening cycle, both the Fed's reverse repo operation and the TGA are many times larger. Consider this, if the Fed had securities on its balance sheet that matched the maturity profile demanded by the institutions engaging in reverse repos, it could sell an amount equal to the total reverse repo balance to these institutions, reducing the need for reverse repos and elicit no change in the financial or real economy. This is key. If it could sell, it could sell an amount equal to the total reverse repo balance to these institutions, which is 2.2 trillion, which is more than anyone thinks they're going to roll off the balance sheet, um, and elicit no change to the financial or real economy. So basically, they built up the TGA 
and the reverse repo in anticipation of the quantitative tightening. And they know they're not going to do more than $2 trillion of quantitative tightening. The net effect is no change to the financial real economy. And now they're saying that they might even lower the schedule or adjust the schedule based on data, which basically means quantitative tightening is net zero. If anything, uh, it's positive liquidity. And now the question is rates and rates uh, are going to be dependent on the CPI, uh, but they're going to be stabilizing and or pace going down very soon. So we'll talk about that more later. Consider also, given that the reverse repo balance is $2.18 trillion, and the Fed is scheduled to reduce its balance sheet by $95 billion per month, it would take almost two years to work off the reverse repos solely through quantitative tightening. So in other words, this will have net negative effect, no negative effect on the economy or the markets for at least two years. But keep in mind, they are two-thirds behind schedule on quantitative tightening. So the idea that they're even going to do $95 billion a month for more than a few months is uh, probably uh, unrealistic, uh, to, to put it mildly. And uh, the backstop is there with the repo facility. So, plus, the variability of the TGA balance shows that the economy can handle the scheduled liquidity withdrawal with still yet ample liquidity reserves. From the end of November 2021, to April 2022, the TGA increased by $816 billion. That was equivalent to quantitative tightening to of $163 billion per month, far above the scheduled monthly draw commencing September 2022. Given the balance of the TGA and reverse repo operations combined with the increased counterparty participants and the lesser quantitative tightening to operation, mathematically, there is no real issue regarding net liquidity drain of the financial economy. So uh, kudos and hats off to Kevin Muir over at Bloomberg for putting this out and Seth sending that along. Really powerful stuff. Um, ECB, let's talk about what the Fed had to say today, namely Jay Powell. When Jay speaks, we listen. Remember, the theme is to talk hawkish and act dovish. So Powell, the pandemic gave rise to much more dire consequences. We wouldn't have seen high inflation without COVID, uh, which the, the converse then is true. As COVID leaves us, inflation that therefore must go. In other words, it's not the 1970s and the 1980s. And we'll, we'll talk to some of those points in a minute. Uh, pandemic led to shift away from services to goods. Okay, that's shifting back. That's not obvious. Uh, contributed to constrained supply. If you remember off the LA port just six months ago, there were 40 ships waiting to get in. Now that's down to eight. Everything is normalizing. Um, uh, pandemic contributed to a reduction in labor force size. That's now moving up as we saw in the jobs report last week. The labor force participation went up, which is going to create some slack over time as that trend continues. Um, Powell will keep, will keep going until we get the job done. He may find out on the 13th that the job is done uh, or, or getting a lot closer to it, particularly when you look at five-year inflation break-evens now, the lowest in about a year and a half, uh, which is mind-boggling. So uh, uh, Powell, it's very much my view. We need to act forthrightly and strongly on inflation, talk hawkish, act dovish get that reserve repo uh, facility and uh, TGA balances well beyond any tightening they're going to do. Uh, Powell, longer inflation remains above target, the greater the risk. Well, 
uh, inflation expectations have completely collapsed from 359 down to 251 since March. So um, that is key. Uh, history cautions against prematurely loosening policy. That's different than stopping to tighten, uh, which would be considered a pivot. Uh, and, uh, and I agree with him. And I think the first cuts won't come till sometime next year. Uh, Powell, we will not be influenced by political considerations. Uh, <laughs> cough, cough. Uh, it's very important that inflation expectations remain well anchored. This is the most important line, and this is what I've been talking about. The Fed cares more about inflation expectations than they do actual inflation. And with inflation expectations collapsing since March, and particularly in a pronounced way in the last few weeks with uh, RBOB and gas prices going down for the last you know, uh, 85 days consecutively, uh, their talk hawkish and act dovish plan is working perfectly and give them a lot of credit for what they're doing. Um, so odds are still on 75 basis points in September. I think that's going to change pretty quickly as we get the CPI numbers next week, but we'll see. At the very least, it's going to be that conference that comes after and how does he guide forward? Uh, you know, if they did do 75 and he says, hey, uh, 75 is, is highly unusual with the recent inflation numbers, if those continue in the next month or so, uh, this will probably be the highest, you know, the, the final of the unusually high uh, hikes, uh, i.e. this is the last 75, then, you know, it could be a dovish conference and that would be okay. But I think more likely than not, I think the CPI number is going to be strong enough that they can go 50 and be in line with what Harker said, that uh, 50 is still substantial when you consider out of the last 86 hikes since 1983, 75 have been 50 or less. Um, moving along, uh, at the short end, the clock is ticking and more concerns public will incorporate higher inflation expectations. Well, they're not if you look at break-evens, and he knows that, but talk hawkish act of it. Uh, labor demand still strong. That's largely true, but softening. Um, just want to see. Uh, we looked at national. Okay, so now they're getting to no nominal income targeting, which they're not doing. Ah, it is broadly agreed that the trend growth has declined. That's difficult to incorporate into a nominal income. Okay, I don't see a case for moving to a single mandate. And I think that was basically the key. Ah, this is the key line of the day. I am prepared to adjust the balance sheet runoff as the economy needs. So um, again, that basically between the TGA, the reverse repo facility, the increased dealers, and um, the adjusting of the schedule already before they even basically start tells you quantitative tightening is a non-issue. Now it just comes down to rates and we're going to know by the 21st where they stand on that. Um, I don't see a case for returning to a scarce reserve game, which is another way of saying I'm going to pump this market with as much liquidity as it needs. Uh, moving along, crypto, our federal fiscal policy is not on a sustainable path, you think, uh, the debt to GDP, and the only game plan to reduce the debt to GDP is what they did post-World War II, which is run inflation hot three to 5% over the next few years while they continue to talk hawkish, but tighten very little. And, um, and that was successful post-World War II. They brought debt to GDP down from about 120% to 
uh, which is a uh, little less than where we are now, down to 63% in five years, and the same thing will happen this time. Um, especially now that we're moving into a gridlock environment post-November, uh, there'll be much less spending happening moving forward. Uh, monetary policy. Okay, monetary. Just want to make sure I didn't miss anything from Powell. And that's that's it. So uh, that was very good, and uh, the market liked it. I think the uh, uh, market is up. Yeah, Dow's up 163. I think the S&P was up 29 points last I looked. Uh, here's some important inflation stuff. Wholesale gas futures are down 6% week to date on pace for the fourth straight weekly loss for the first time this year. Uh, you know, we're back down to uh, early 2020 levels. So this has completely rolled over. Moving right along, 3% drop, 3.6% drop in used price, used vehicle prices in mid-month. Mannheim update. Full month August results for used car pricing shows Mannheim down negative 4%, uh, the biggest decline of the year. So August headline CPI modeling used car prices, which is a 4% weighting, is down 3%. It's actually down now 4%. Gasoline prices, which is a 5.2% weighting in CPI, are now down 12%. Those two components would be a whopping negative 75 basis points drag. Pretty good chance we get a negative headline reading on September 12th, uh, September 13th, I believe. Uh, talk about hiking into a slowdown here. You see crude oil rolling over. I think it was $82 yesterday. Lumber futures back to the future, all the way back down to where they started. Uh, freight index, shipping rates, China to the West Coast, all the way back down to a uh, year and a half ago levels. Uh, Baltic dry index, uh, new lows here. So again, you know, everything's coming down. Now, gasoline falling like a rock down 25% in 85 days. Never seen during the inflation era of the 1970s to 1980s. As I said two weeks ago, people are looking at the wrong decade. They, all of these guys who grew up in the 70s are saying it's the 70s with recency bias, like a general fighting the last war. The, the decade to look at is the 1950s and, um, and, uh, and the model that the Fed used to uh, talk hawkish, let inflation run above trend, bring down debt to GDP. There was huge borrowing to fight, fight a visible war in World War II, huge borrowing to fight an invisible war during COVID. And um, so what does that mean? Look at the 1970 to 1990 period. Gasoline rose for a decade before it even started to fall. It did not register a single peak to trough drawdown of more than 2% in 10 years. Completely different than what we're dealing with now. Complete rollovers here in that period in the 70s that everyone talks about it just kept going and early 80s it just kept going up and up and up before finally flatlining in the 80s every time gasoline is just flatlined cpi tanks tanks in 1990 1981 this was a precursor to a massive decline in cpi see what we are getting at okay so um so that's exactly what happened to cpi once gas stopped going up cpi rolled up rolled over once gas stopped uh going up cpi completely rolled over and cp and gas is not only flatlining it's collapsing uh and cpi is going to go with it so uh that's the story hopefully they just don't ra raise too much um 
uh, and they're they're patient with this because tightening always has a lagged effect. So if they do another 75, six months from now, that's really going to have an impact. And uh, they've just done 275, so it might be too much. So our base case is 50 or less. Uh, that's in the minority. Or if they do 75, they're going to have to have really, really dovish guidance. But uh, at least we know now quantitative tightening is a net neutral. Um, we, can, we can just uh, focus on the rates. ISM services, prices continue to move in the right direction, completely collapsing. So it's just across the board data. Goldman, we've argued that the U.S. economy can achieve a soft landing, even though the path is narrow. We see some encouraging signs that the economy is moving forward towards these goals. Um, the news on inflation has been encouraging. So they have these two tables on um, asking rents are completely rolling over on Zillow and apartment list. Uh, shelter inflation tracker, PCE shelter index are starting to show some signs of weakening. So that's a good thing. Um, wowza, Cleveland Fed month-on-month -month CPS forecast now diving. This is from Seth Golden. Terminology over-tighten, however, may already proven its market impact uh, and less impactful than verbiage. So... Month-on-month -month current period back to flatline. That, that would be the lowest in uh, a year and a half once again. Uh, and that's from the Cleveland Fed data itself in real time. Uh, here is uh, nothing as a neutral rate. So don't get married to any suggestion of the neutral rate and Fed objective to achieve this concept. You know, you've been hearing 4%, 4%, 4%. But when you look at the survey of uh, economists, uh, you don't see any consensus like that. It's closer to 2.5%. The Fed knows this, but again, they have to what? Talk hawkish and act dovish to bring down long-term inflation expectations, which is a very successful strategy and is working extremely well. Um, so this is the article that that was from. Fed's long-sought neutral goal proves elusive and a moving target. Shows broad uh, economist survey shows broad disagreement on the level. Some Fed officials now see short-term neutral rate as higher, um, but um, but economists see it as lower. And my sense is uh, the data next week will um, solve that debate. Jobs growth slowed. That's this is from Friday. Why that could be good news? Uh, we know why that could be good news because the Fed can back off on on hiking so aggressively. Tom Lee, the stock market rally could uh, rally to new highs by the end of the year as plunging oil prices help tame inflation. Uh, Tom Lee's fund strat, we agree. Uh, we covered some of this concept last week. This is a newer thing. The idea that inflation would be sticky, like the 70s and 80s, was based on oil rising to $140 or higher. Remember when it was $120, everyone was calling for $140. Uh, well, now it's at basically $80. Uh, bottom line, we see second half stock market rally thesis intactly concluded. We agree. Uh, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman says the Fed can crush inflation without tanking the economy or causing unemployment to soar. This is the first time I have ever agreed with this man. Uh, and I think he's absolutely right. And he's taking the counter argument to Larry Summers, who, by the way, my golf pro uh, also taught when he was up in Nantucket, which is, is pretty funny. But um, he said, we can have a fairly soft landing that doesn't impose massive suffering um, for gradual rate hikes until there are clear signs of slowing underlying inflation. So uh, we're in this camp as well. And gradual would be, uh, you know, 50 is unusually high. 
Uh, 75 is a complete aberration, you know, 11 out of 86 hikes or whatever since 1983. So if we got a 50 here and then we move down to 25s, I think it's all over and I think we are going to do this. We'll be below trend next year because of the lagged effect from all the tightening that's already happened. But that's a good thing. One and a half percent GDP for a year until we get back to equilibrium is not a horrible thing. Uh, this is an article about uh, the Chinese tech companies. This just blew my mind. If you look at the cash hoards from the top Chinese, you know, sentiment is obviously completely in the toilet. But that's going to change, and when it changes, opinion follows trend. But let's just take a look at this and do a little bit, a little, little bit of uh, math on the back of the napkin. Alibaba now has 103 billion dollars of cash. Alibaba's market cap is 237 billion dollars. They could buy back in half of the company with the cash on their balance sheet. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. So if you back out the cash, that means Alibaba is trading at 110 billion dollars. I mean. You can't make this stuff up. This is going to be, uh, Ant Financial alone will be worth a trillion dollars, and we own a third of that as shareholders of Alibaba. So, you know, just hang on, guys. We got to get through this audit silliness uh, this month. That'll be uh, probably helpful. We got to get through some ridiculous uh, strategies of the communist government doing these shutdowns every five minutes because they're scared little chickens. God forbid anyone catches a virus. Uh, and little do they know that uh, that's what's been so successful about the American recovery is we basically just lived with it. Uh, we pushed through and now we effectively have herd immunity uh, in the sense that anytime you get COVID and most people have had it once or twice already, uh, it just gets less and less every single time. And it's just becoming like the annual flu. It's not great for the first day or day and a half. And then after that, you get on with your life and, and uh, uh, the same thing happens. So the good news is their vaccination, their efficacy of their vaccine is uh, only 63% versus ours is much higher, but they're getting many more vaccines in many people. People are getting it. And eventually this just dies out after two years, like you saw in 1918 to 1920. They're prolonging the pain, self-inflicted pain, uh, really unwise policy from an economic standpoint, but uh, you know, politicians do crazy things in an elective uh, in an election year. Uh, and, um, you know, this is no different. So uh, investors are foregoing crash insurance in options market. The reverse recent reversal in stocks hasn't sparked options bets that would pay out if markets keep dropping. What that means, this this is uh, they're talking about the SKU decks, the nation SKU decks. This is this is basically saying the same thing that the SKU index is saying that I've been talking about for the last few years uh, uh, and, and more uh, recently the last few weeks as it relates to the extreme level that it's at. And this is the key. One possible reason for the dissonance, and this is what I've, I've said, hedge funds and other big institutional investors have already reduced their exposure to the stock market after the S&P dropped 21% i.e. they sold in the hole and they have nothing left to insure. They're all in cash and any bit of good news, hint September 13th, hint September 21st, could force them to chase into the market into year end. And, um, and uh, that, that'll be uh, the likely playbook. Now, the other thing as it relates to the dollar, we've talked a lot about that. All of our trades will basically uh, fall into place as the dollar stops going up. We're going to talk about why that's going to happen. But one reason is the ECB raised rates to 75 basis points today. So the relative yield play is now uh, the, the scales are shifting. 
as these other uh, regions are playing catch up, uh, we're kind of at the end of our process, whether it's 75 or 50 or even 25, it's, it's the end of the big hikes for us. And these groups may have to go a little bit longer uh, to curb their inflation due to their um, unwise energy policies and foolish geopolitical decisions. Now, the case for a soft landing, how high inflation could end without a recession. This is more on that uh, Goldman article with Jan Hatzius. A couple key points. Um, the three soft landings were 1965, 1984, 1994. We're in the 1994 camp. So far, it's playing according to script. Uh, the soft landing has already begun. Uh, economic growth has, uh, has slowed below its long-term trend of 175. Uh, growth was slightly negative in the first half of this year and will be around 1.25 in the coming 12 months. Uh, inflation doesn't have to fall for 2%. It's not going to, by the way. They'll run it between 3 and 5. They'll just keep talking down expectations. They've got to bring down the debt to GDP, as I covered two weeks ago in detail. And private balance sheets are strong. Uh, global economists were more pessimistic than the consensus in 2007. Uh, this was based on their analysis of uh, financial balances. Private sector spending significantly outstripped its income. Uh, that amplified pullback in consumption and investment when the financial crisis hit. Today, their analysis of financial balance sheets leads to a different conclusion. Private borrowing is within historical ranges. This doesn't rule out a recession. Indeed, it might mean the Fed at the margin must raise interest rates more to achieve the desired slowing in demand. But Mr. Hatsi has said the sort of knock-on effects that transform into a, a moderate downturn into something more severe are much less likely. The absence of such tail risk favors a soft landing. Goldman's upbeat outlook is swimming against the stream of economic history and recent market sentiment, but inflation news in July and job market news in August have made it more plausible than a few months ago. We agree with Jan Hatzius in this case. Um, let's just uh, break down to the China situation. Uh, you know, I've always said watch the dollar. Once that stops going up, this trade's going to take off. The other factor is obviously the zero COVID. So here's a COVID tracker from Morgan Stanley this week. 16% of national GDP is under some form of lockdown right now as of two days ago. Two domestic vaccines have been granted EUA approval. Um, so that'll get more and more people vaccinated. But these are the cases, uh, domestic asymptomatic, uh, asymptomatic cases. Uh, they did peak now going on three weeks ago, so that's good news. This looks like it's rolling back over as we've seen many spikes over the year. I can't believe we're still looking at these charts two years later, but the difference between the U.S. and China is U.S. had a better policy, just let people get immune to it, whereas China wants to prevent everyone from getting the flu. Uh, and as a result, they're, they're dealing with these spikes two years later, which is just silly season, but that's, that's how they've chosen to govern. And... Um, and ultimately, uh, but ultimately, no matter how bad they screw it up, the, the virus is just going to die on its own over time and uh, they'll have nothing left to lock down. So Chinese securities regulator says that it will implement the Sino-US audit deal. Uh, just for clarification, they wanted to say that, you know, yeah, we signed it, but we're actually going to do it because uh, many people were questioning. Uh, usually when Chinese sign a document, that's when they begin negotiating. Uh, in this case, it seems that they're actually going to follow through with it because it's in their interest. Chinese cu China cuts banks' forex reserve rate to boost yuan as the dollar strength persists. 
so they're in panic mode across the board and um, uh, they will get things resolved with the amount of st stimulus, etc. But they've just got to stop with the silly season and uh, they, the, the shutdowns will stop if not by intelligent uh, governing policy, uh, by the simple fact that the spike is three weeks in the rearview mirror. And uh, the way these spikes work, as we found out in the US and around the world, is they get very acute and then they just roll, roll right over, over over the following weeks. And, and it looks like we're three or four weeks into that. Um, China sees third quarter as key for rollout of stimulus measures. Support policies are crucially important. The NDRC official, PBOC deputy government says, uh, country can keep you unstable. So this is just more of the panic. They want to make sure all the stimulus they promised gets into the system this quarter. Um, Xi renews call for China tech push after U.S. escalates curbs. So they want chips. They're desperate. Who are the players in chips? Well, Alibaba is one of them with their AI chips, with their cloud chips, with all the chips that the government needs. So uh, they're going to have to uh, uh, continue to support Alibaba since, since they did their pivot in March. Uh, cutting China tariffs would ease inflation expectations for the U.S. The golden moment is coming soon. Uh, that implies November 15th when they meet at the, when Xi and Biden meet at the uh, G8 meeting. I think that's uh, November 15th. Uh, I'm sorry, at the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, November 15th and 16th. Moving right along, uh, U.S. audit deal or no deal, dozens of Chinese companies believe they won't have to delist. Many smaller Chinese companies listed in the U.S. are using a workaround to stringent audit rules. More than 100 U.S. Chinese listed companies could avoid the delisting threat thanks to a workaround that American accounting firms use to audit companies in China, according to the Wall Street Journal's review of their filings with the U.S. accounting watchdog. Beijing has long prohibited foreign access to Chinese companies' audit working papers. The documents an internal auditor creates when examining their clients' accounts on national security grounds. But some smaller accounting firms based in the U.S. have been able to audit companies in China in partnership with the local accounting firms and individual contractors who essentially conduct the work on the U.S. firm's computer systems. So the, the raw audit records are maintained by the U.S. accounting firms and are hence accessible to U.S. regulators and subject to inspection. That means Chinese clients of these firms aren't in violation of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act of 2020, which bans the trading of securities of companies whose auditors can't be inspected by the American audit watchdog for three consecutive years. So effectively what they're saying was this was a complete charade and uh, they both realized that uh, Gensler, who came from uh, Goldman Sachs and, and knows the value of the Chinese IPO listings, debt offerings, equity offerings, and banking relationships helps our U.S. banks. And the Chinese realizing, wait a second, the Hong Kong markets aren't deep enough for us to finance the future growth that we want for a billion, four hundred million people. So therefore, we should uh, keep access to the deepest, most robust credit markets and uh, equity markets and capital markets in the world in the United States. And all of a sudden, a uh, good plan comes together, uh, complete charade and nonsense posturing for the last year. But it created the opportunity to buy the highest quality assets on sale. And, uh, and many of you have, and, uh, and now we're gonna get rewarded. So I um, love the idea of uh, oil, pri uh, energy price caps in Europe. 
Apparently, they haven't read a history book uh, other than this one U.S. Treasury official has figured it out. China and India could take advantage of a Russian oil price cap and buy more cheap barrels. Duh! That's exactly what they've been doing while we're drawing down our strategic petroleum reserve because we've uh, uh, had the lowest uh, oil leases available since the new administration came into power. Uh, the the um, uh, China and India are uh, aggressively filling up their strategic petroleum reserves, building reserves at a discount that we've given them through Russia because Russia can't sell to other places. So uh, China's the greatest beneficiary of our policy. Uh, you, you literally can't make this stuff up. Uh, moving on to Alibaba, this is a Morgan Stanley note from the Virtual Asia TMT conference. They have an overweight buy rating on Alibaba, albeit with sentiment so low, their price target is very low at 140, but they'll take that up just like they all do uh, as opinion follows trend, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, as far as their commerce business, July gross merchandise volume growth was better than May and June combined. We talked about that in terms of web traffic a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, next was uh, striking balance between efficiency and growth. Highlighted Alibaba highlighted that efficiency improvements were not solely driven by cost cutting, but via a holistic approach to reallocating resources within the group. Um, cloud revenue growth from non-internet sectors reaccelerated to over 20% in um, 1Q, while internet was flat mainly because of lingering lower revenue contribution from large customers overseas business, which will continue in uh, uh, 2Q. And second, online education. In the medium term, Alibaba believes enterprises in China will transition from replacement cycle to innovation cycle where digitization solutions will be more crucial than infrastructure hardware. That's where they benefit. We saw the same thing with AWS in the US five years ago. They're five years behind. AliCloud is better positioned to offer such solutions and it has already seen this trend in the financial services sector. So if you read the McKinsey report we covered last week, they expect the cloud business in China to triple just by 2025. So basically, you know, in two and a half years, Alibaba's got 36% share. They'll probably have 40% share of 90 billion is 36 billion. So by the way, $36 billion, most of that will drop to the bottom line because the infrastructure is in place. So let's just call it a new $20 billion to the bottom line. Put a 10 multiple on that if you want to be conservative, even though they've historically traded a much higher multiple, that's 200 billion. If you back out the cash of the business, it's currently trading at 110 billion just on the growth of the cloud, not the existing business will be worth more than the whole business is trading at right now. And that's why you just gotta you know, set aside the short-term sentiment, the short-term policy uh, shenanigans, and look a little bit further out the road because when it changes, it changes all at once. When it comes, it comes all at once. And uh, uh, you know, outsized returns are lumpy. But over time, if you look at things in a three-year period, uh, and you get that the, the hockey sticks once every two years where you get double and triple your equi equity curve over time. That's how you outperform. So uh, this is going to be one more example of it. We've gone over it ad infinitum. It's just a question of when, and I think we're near those catalysts now. One will be the Fed, uh, and that'll help the dollar. And then two will be this election and everything else. And then, and then they can get on with normalized policy. Uh, and uh, but the key thing is as the dollar weakens, money is going to flow into emerging markets. 
Uh, China is the biggest weight and Alibaba is one of the top weights w- within those indices. So um, it's just, you know, it's just waiting for the hockey stick and, and it is coming. Uh, Morgan Stanley autos and shared mobility. So uh, car sales came in a little bit better than expected. 13.4 versus 13.3. You can see the trends here. 13.4. So it's still anemic, but year on year it's up a little bit. They're going to have to start. They haven't done it yet, but with used car prices coming down 4%, you're going to start to see more and more incentives from the dealers. As the, the uh, more and more chips roll in, you're going to continue to see more supply. You're seeing the days of inventory increase. That shows us that the chips are, in fact, coming in as anticipated. Now to the article of the week. The final countdown stock market and sentiment results. As I've been saying since before Jackson Hole, the most important, uh, didn't have, there we go. The most important data point for 2022 will come on September 13 when the CPI data is released. Nothing like having an 80s hairband Europe lead us into the most pivotal print of the year. Uh, This is the song, The Final Countdown from Europe. You can see the last print on CPI year on year was up 8.5%. I think we're going to see that come down quite a bit. Uh, And we're going to see the month on month negative. So it's going to be very hard for the Fed to make a compelling case for doing abnormally high hikes a week later if this number comes in um, much lower than expected. So expectations are high, but as we covered last week, the underlying data points to a downside surprise, i.e. inflation coming in lower than expected. Here are the inflation components. We talked about RBOB. Energy is the the largest component. We saw what happened with that, with Carl Quintanilla's thread. Uh, New and used vehicles is the second largest. We see what's already happening with used vehicles rolling rolling over in August with the Mannheim Index. Uh, Food at home, restaurants, hotels and transportation, and shelter, which we showed you some data on shelter. Here's a Another chart from Barry Bannister at Stiefel, it shows CPI year on year, which is the left axis, which got up to 9% uh, versus the average of ISM manufacturing and services prices paid on the right axis. And as you can see, um, there's been no instances where ISM manufacturing and services prices paid have rolled over to this extent and CPI didn't absolutely collapse. And I think we're going to see the exact same thing here, probably very similar to, to 2013 to 2014 period uh, where they got all the way down here and inflation abated. Um, the key will be whether the numbers come in low enough for the Fed to raise 50 basis points or less on September 21st versus consensus of 75. In late August, two Fed presidents made the following statements. Uh, Esther George said lags from policy are long and variable. And Harker said 86 hikes since 1983, 75 were under 50 basis points. 75 basis points is unusual. 50 basis points is still substantial. And that's still my base case that they would come out uh, assuming that the 13th data comes in as as, uh, well as I expect. Uh, They come out and and make that case like, hey, we're going 50. We're still committed to this. 50 is is still substantial, much higher than uh, expected. Uh, and if we have to do another 50, we'll do it. Otherwise, uh, if the data confirms what we saw this month, we can go down to uh, 25 for the next couple of months and then maybe be done. So the implication is they want to see the lagged effect of the recent 75 basis point hikes. 
before going too aggressively on 75 basis points or the quantitative tightening schedule. This was reiterated yesterday by uh, Cleveland Fed President Mester. Our challenge is to engineer a slowdown in economic activity without causing a recession. Uh, Mester said that they are not aiming for a recession and they're not aiming for tanking any markets, i.e. they do have their eye on things. So after two quarters of negative GDP growth this year, Messer said she expects positive growth in the last six months. We agree. Very similar to Jan Hatzius. But for this year as a whole and next year, I expect growth to run well below 2%, which is my estimate of trend growth. Well, if that's the case, there is absolutely zero justification for doing 75 or even 50 for that matter. It should be 25 or zero. But they can't do that now because they've talked such a big game. Uh, but I, I'm always going to take the under on, on that. And uh, let's see what happens in two weeks. The Beige Book confirmed what Mester was saying, that growth is slowing. Uh, five districts reporting slight to modest growth in activity. Uh, five others reporting slight to modest softening. Households continue to trade down and shift spending away from discretionary goods, more towards food and other essentials. Um, uh, uptick, uh, business, uh, uptick in business travel, that's good to see. Residential real estate conditions weakened no- noticeably as home sales fell in all 12 districts. So this is going to be a theme for the next six months or whatever because of the lagged effect of mortgage rates going up dramatically. Those will come down next year. So the time to be buy housing, as I said, is probably going to be this winter when sentiment absolutely collapses. Uh, if not, then, then we'll just miss it. But um, uh, I think there are going to be better chances to buy that when people think that rates are going to go up forever just before the Fed starts cutting again. Uh, commercial real estate activity softened. Loan demand was mixed. Residential loan demand was weak. Outlook for future economic growth remained generally weak with contacts noting expectations for further softening of demand over the next 6 to 12 months, i.e. mission accomplished from the Fed, talk hawkish, act elvish. Um, labor markets... Uh, All districts highlighted some improvement in labor availability. Employers noted improved worker retention. People don't want to quit anymore. Slower pace of increase. Moderating salary expectations were widespread. They don't have to pay them as much anymore. They're just happy to have a job. Nine districts reported some degree of moderation in their rate of increase for prices. So prices are not going up as fast. Lower fuel prices and cooling overall demand alleviated cost pressures, especially freight shipping rates. Um... Several districts reported some tapering in prices for steel, lumber, and copper. You think? Just look at the futures chart. Works on a lagged effect. They're going to come down a lot more in the cash markets. Uh, We pounded the table in recent weeks' podcast, videocast, and media appearance that the playbook is to talk hawkish, act dovish in a regime where CPI was 9% and the Fed funds rate was 225. That's all you need to know. This strategy has not only worked to bring down demand and inflation without having to aggressively tighten, as we covered in last week's note above. It worked post-World War II as well. Uh, same plan, different decade. They ran above trend inflation to bring down debt to GDP. Within uh, five years, they brought it down from 120 down to uh, uh, 63, and then it collapsed down to 20% by 1972. We're going to run the exact same playbook here. Uh, I think their peak, you can go back to the article, but I think they peaked out their Fed funds rate uh, on this play at 3%. And uh, if that's the case, then maybe we do 75 and done. 
or we do 20, 50, 25 would probably be the best case scenario and done and then start cutting sometime next year. If we're correct and the Fed raises less than 75 basis points, the market will view this as a pivot from extreme measures to a more moderate stance, i.e. the beginning of the end for tightening. For anyone doubting the efficacy of the Fed's plan, one only need look at five-year inflation break-evens, which have collapsed from 359 in March to 251 today. Uh, GDP estimates are also now below trend. Atlanta GDP now is at 1.4% for the third quarter. Uh, we covered these factors in detail on Tuesday with Mitch Hawk on Benzinga. Thanks to Mitch and Zoltan Sarani for having me on. If the Fed goes less than 75 bips on September 21st, it will catalyze the following. Number one, U.S. dollar weakness. What does that mean? It means huge flows into emerging markets, China, uh, and all the markets that have been punished because of the strong dollar. Two, it means that high-yield credit markets will reopen for companies to refinance debt. That helps Cooper Standard, which is a key factor uh, with uh, reopening and getting, getting their debt refinanced. Uh, and three, a bid in risk assets. So equities will obviously get bid, emerging markets, China, and biotech. So you can see this clearly demonstrated from the June lows uh, in the S&P in the S 500 to the August highs. As rates came down, high-yield junk bonds and equities were bid higher, which means their cost of financing came down. So uh, rates go down. Uh, junk bonds go up, S&P 500 goes up, etc. So uh, we expect the same thing now. The setup for a pivotal a pivot is ideal as most managers are still off sides and holding cash. After chasing the top in early August and getting flushed, the trap door opened in the last couple of weeks with a 10% correction. While the dumb money, large traders, uh, in the red line at the bottom of this chart from the commitments of traders, uh, are the most short equity since the pandemic lows. You can't make this up. Okay, most short equity since the pandemic lows. What happened next? There you go. Most short since the 2011 lows. What happened next? Straight up. Um, smart money, the commercials, the green line at the bottom of the chart, are the most aggressively long equities since the 2011 lows. And what happened next? Straight up. So um, that's all you need to know. And here's small caps, the dumb money, short as hell, the smart money, long as hell, same thing happened here, straight up. Now, sentiment traders. Sometimes there's just a chart that blows your hair back. Uh, Mikhail Bobkoff and Presley sent this over to me. Um, in 22 years of doing this, none stand out like this one. Last week, institutional traders bought $8.1 billion worth of put options. They bought less than $1 billion in calls. So $7.1 billion of put options last week, uh, $1 billion of calls. That's three times more extreme than the bottom in 2008. Um, while dumb money large traders, red line at the bottom of the chart, uh, are the most short 10-year treasuries since the 2018 lows, um, lows in price, high in yields, smart money, the commercials, are the most aggressively long 10-year treasuries since the 2018 lows in price. So last time they were this long, what happened? You had a bottom in bonds and a huge rally, uh, which, which led to a compression in yields. Same thing, you're looking at the 10-year yield up on this trend line. 10-year uh, yield is showing early evidence of stalling peaking at its prior cycle high from 2018, near 325. And finally, while the dumb money, uh, large traders, red line at the chart, are the most long the U.S. dollar since the 2017 and 2020 highs in price. So last time they were this long, you got a top and a rollover. Last time before that, top and a rollover, top and rollover. 
uh, more importantly than a top in rollovers, just stopped going up. And um, smart money commercials are the most aggressively short the US dollar since 2017 and 2020 highs. They're short here while the dollar's high. They're short here while the dollar's high. It rolls over. They're short. It rolls over. Short rolls over. Short rolls over. Short rolls over. Short rolls over. I don't know what, how many times I have to show this chart. So what side of the trade do you want to be on going into September 13th and 21st? Consumer sentiment is bottomed in line with previous major inflection points and bottoms in previous bear markets. You can see it here. It bottomed a couple of weeks ago. We talked about how inflation and consumer sentiment were tied at the hips. Well, inflation is now moderating, so consumer sentiment is improving. And similar to August 2011, what happened next? Straight up, straight up, straight up. Uh, the bottom in 2008, the recession in 1990, and on and on and on. Retail sentiment is completely flushed out. If you look at the AAII bullish and bearish sentiment, we've gone, you know, we cover this every single week. We've repeatedly talked about what will happen to the US dollar weaker and emerging markets equity stronger when the Fed pivots, hikes at a slower pace. Here's a look at the cycles of US versus non-US performance over time, followed by earnings expectations by country for next year. You can see this runs in cycles. US had a huge run from 1993 to 2000 of outperformance uh, relative to the US. Uh, Ex-US had a huge outperformance in the late 80s. Uh, U.S. is coming off huge outperformance. I think we're going to go back to seeing ex-U.S. have the massive outperformance in the coming five years, particularly emerging markets. If you look at earnings growth expectations for next year, who's got the biggest? Oh, China. No one figured that out. Obviously coming off a low base, but highest growth rate in 2023 and for 2024. Uh, and no one wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole except for us. And we'll see how that plays out. Opinion will follow the trend. Uh, population growth of the middle class. This is just a confirmation of what we've been talking about, about the demographics in coming years. China is still going to have a monster run for the next five years before they become Japan by the end of the decade. Uh, and Mexico looks pretty good. Maybe we need to start to look at some equities there, uh, as well as India, which we talked about in, in the out years. So for those of you doubting the long China thesis, know that these trends are too strong for even a communist government to screw it up, no matter how hard they try with zero COVID policies. They're working full-time to destroy their own prosperity, but will fail miserably based on demographics in the next three to five years. And the fact that like 1918 to 1920, the virus eventually dies on its own. We covered this theme extensively about two weeks ago. Here, uh, here is uh, the major markets and S&P sector cycles from RBC. Hat tip to my friend over there. And hat tip to my friend uh, Zach over at uh, Morgan for sending me the notes on... Uh, on uh, um, the autos and the Chinese as well uh, that we covered earlier. But you can see China and small caps probably have the best risk reward moving forward and the biggest upside from where they are positioned. And they're right at their inflection from a cycle standpoint. Um, well, while China is positioned for the next three to five years, the U.S. is also well positioned with the millennial population beginning housing and family formation. These cycles work like clockwork, and I think this time will be no different. And last but not least, let's not forget about biotech, which is in the bottoming and early uptrend of what we believe will be a two to three year uh, huge up cycle like we saw from 2016 to 2018 during that tightening cycle. So for those of you involved with any meme stocks of any kind, watch this segment I did with Kristen Scholler on Cheddar this Tuesday. It's a cautionary tale. 
Thanks to Christian, Kristen, and Eli Park for having me on. Now on to the shorter term view for the general market. Uh, retail sentiment is completely flushed out at 18% bullish, 53% bearish. Uh, it's back at June low levels and actually lower than the pandemic lows, which is mind boggling. Uh, CNN fear and greed fell to 40% this week. Sentiment is still fearful. And equity exposure, national exposure, Association of Active Investment Managers dropped to 32% from 54% uh, equity exposure last week. Any good news and managers will be forced to chase up into year end. Economic data from this week, the most important economic data is going to come from next week. But the ISM non-manufacturing PMI came in better than expected. The prices came in lower than expected. That's a good thing. Um, uh, we had a huge build in crude inventories that's going to put further pressure on crude. So that happened while we were talking here and then, um, or a little beforehand actually. Uh, and then earnings for everyone that was calling for 20% markdowns in earnings for Q2 were completely wrong. It, the markdowns have been between two to 3%. We're now trading at 16.7 times forward earnings compared to the five-year average of 18.6 and the 10-year average of 17.0. Uh, we think if we do see a weakness in the US dollar, that estimates are gonna go back up. No one's looking for that. So we got up to 250, we're down to 243, about 3%, a little less than 3% uh, uh, reduction when people were calling for the world to end. Watch what happens when the dollar weakens, we'll be off to the races. So with that said, uh, we have covered quite a bit. Wanna thank everyone for tuning in. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Uh, in the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now. Oh, quick thing for, wasn't able to cover this on the video cast, but John Passer asked an AMA question. Uh, good call on CPS. Have you taken any money off the table? Go back and listen to the original thesis. Number one, it's not a good call. Nothing's happened yet. They haven't refinanced anything. That was a catalyst. Um, uh, we're not in this for to make a, a double. We're in this for a lot more. Um, so go back and review long-term normalized EBITDA, long-term uh, multiple range, and what we expect to happen once they get refinanced and as uh, supply chips normalize. And uh, nothing's changed in terms of it becoming a zero either in the sense that credit markets are still tight. We hope that's going to change after the 13th and the 16th. Uh, I'm sorry, the 13th and the 21st. We expect that will be the case. They'll get some, uh, get the small uh, tranche of 300 million refinanced before the end of this year, probably at uh, less than advantageous terms. This, the chips will come in. They'll start pumping out, you know, 30 to 50 million dollars a quarter of EBITDA, and then next year when the Fed starts cutting, they'll they'll redo the 300 and probably the other 300 that's due in 2024 all at once at a much better rate and thing will be totally off to the races. And by then they'll be doing 50, 50 to 75 million a quarter in EBITDA. And now you're looking at a monster business that can be a two and a half billion, $3 billion company again. Uh, and we own a nice percentage of the business. So uh, that's our play there. Why would we take money off the table? Nothing's changed in our thesis because they had an earnings call that wasn't pessimistic. I mean, who cares? That, 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 that's not what we do. Uh, you said you bought options on BABA to reduce the basis of your original purchase. Do you do the options have an expiration date? These uh, are uh, expire in December. We'll probably use the next bout of strength to either roll, roll up and out uh, portion of them. We'd be perfectly comfortable to increase our basis now 
what will be once they blow through 105, 113.50, we would be happy to roll them out to a much higher level and, and tack on another year or two years so we can get a double or triple on the underlying and a many multi-bagger on the um, uh, combined derivative and equity exposure. Uh, does biotech seasonality still favor drug approvals? They're, they're, they're happening. Uh, and are biotech companies still ripe for buyouts? Yes, this is again a two-year trend. I don't care about what happens on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. You know, the, the sector rallied 50% off the lows, off the May lows. Now it's going to consolidate and take a breather. For points of reference, go look at the 2016 to 2018 chart on XBI. It's fits and starts, but the trend is up to new highs over the next two years. And which above would you personally be most inclined to add money to at this time? Uh, all three. So thanks for the great question, John. Uh, sorry I didn't get this in on the video cast, but podcast listeners uh, can share it with their friends. Thanks for now, and we'll see you next week.